Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to our little series called That to Which We Are Tethered, an exploration and discussion about recent new directions of Christianity. On this episode, I'm going to read another essay, this one called Liberated by Scissors, which is a look at modern progressive Christianity as compared to an earlier movement, also calling itself progressivism. The essay is not really finished, but I wanted to get the conversation going. And that said, the episode of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, following this one, will be a chat with Christian thinker and fellow podcaster, Travis McCool, who reacts to aspects of the essay with his own thoughts. That said, let's proceed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12.2 The progressive Christians of our time often seem to radiate with a messianic day spa glow when they tell you the great news that they're finally of the generation who really understands what Jesus actually meant when he said he had good news. They claim that Christianity pretty much took a wrong turn right after Christ left, or pretty soon after that, thereabouts. As one devotee to Richard Rohr put it, quote, We have gotten it wrong for 2,000 years. If we had it right, there wouldn't be the chaos that there is in the world, unquote. Seems kind of strange that the Son of God couldn't communicate all that well, or that all the jillions of Christians in these past 2,000 years were oh so stupid. But better late than never, I suppose. What's even more compelling is that much of the progressives' revelation doesn't actually seem all that much informed by the guiding hands of Scripture, the Church, or Christian history. No doubt there's been past twistings of all of these elements that surely Jesus never intended. But one generally studies scripture, history, and church teaching to both find and imitate where folks got it right, but also to sidestep the pitfalls that some of our ancestors dug and then promptly fell into headfirst, nose held. So if not history, scripture, or some tenet of the faith, where does the great strobe light leading civilization out of darkness pulse from? Well, according to many progressives, the secular world actually, as in the entity Jesus and St. Paul commissioned us to be in but not become conformed by. Yeah, somehow the pagans get it, and you there in the pews, on the mission field, in the homeless shelter, in prayer, or with your nose stuck in a Bible, doesn't. But don't feel too retarded. Even God, Moses, or whoever wrote the Ten Commandments totally missed it as well. Take one fairly common article of faith in the current progressive canon, government-mandated socialism. Quote, If anyone was ever a socialist, it was Jesus. Democratic Socialist of America member Kelly Rose sums up simply. Or as one poster read recently at Princeton University, Jesus was a brown queer socialist. Unquote. No doubt our Savior preached against the vanity of materialism, warned us that the wealthy would have a difficult, though not impossible, task entering the kingdom of God, and commanded us to look after the poor. But did he thus mean we should work towards making everyone materially destitute, hate or kill the rich, and use the gun to force others to give to the poor? Because that's what a lot of socialists boldly advocate and do. 
If authoritarian socialism is what actually Jesus meant, then it has him going against at least some of the center planks of the Hebrew law, namely the Ten Commandments. Socialists envy the possessions of another, thou shalt not covet. Take the possessions of another, thou shalt not steal, and give it to someone else, but not before taking off a 90% administrative fee. At least in the historical examples we have thus far, the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, Vietnam, Zimbabwe, South Africa, etc., forced socialism often brings with it death, thou shalt not murder, especially to those who resist. For that matter, there are a lot of graves filled with the bullet-riddled corpses of those the redistributed wealth was supposed to have gone to help. How in the world did this happen? Famine producing mismanagement of stolen resources, usually, but also because some of the recipients complained of the inefficiency or corruption of the distribution. Somewhere in there, I guess, justice was achieved. And so, in spite of what Jesus said about fulfilling the law to the progressives, it seems that what he really meant was that he was fluid on that point. Now, I should make the distinction between the kind of socialism practiced in families or the voluntary kind we see examples of all the way back to the book of Acts to more recent experiments such as Jane Addams's Hull House Settlements, the Catholic Worker Farms, Jesus People USA, and others. There's an essay in there for another time, but at present, just remember that the socialism rooted in volunteerism and the socialism held together by barbed wire looks and produces two very different organisms. Regardless if the progressives of today really are the true interpreters of Jesus' message, they're not the first to have thought themselves extremely important and vital to the world, nor to be shaped more by the world than Scripture itself. They're also not the first Christians to call themselves progressives. Back in the 1890s appeared a generation of Christians and non-Christians alike who sometimes would be known as modernists or liberals, though very different from the Jeffersonian or what we now call classical liberals, but more times than not, they dubbed themselves as progressives. This era had reason and scripture tugging it out over which was going to win the bedsheet of intellectual legitimacy with the rise of what they deemed a more rational or pragmatic Christianity. In a general sense, they were trying to refit the gospel within the changing, increasingly secular culture which was becoming more and more affected by both scientific discovery and technological innovation. With the rise of automation and the harnessing of electricity, humans were manufacturing miracles, or at least performing feats that would have looked like miracles to those in all the generations before them. Geology and anthropology were telling stories of species and ages not previously known about, thus adding an epic amount of time to the understood age of the Earth and the universe. A better understanding of biology and the followed improving medical practices brought not only longer living and less suffering, but notions that possibly one day death could be overcome. And so reasonable Christians began to rationalize away the validity of what had been previously claimed to have been miracles, both biblical and extra-biblical, shunned literal interpretations of certain parts of the Bible, the six-day creation being chief among the sins of the unreasonable, were unwilling to affirm the Trinitarian nature of God, and deeming that the idea of a second coming of Christ was just a first-century way of expressing having hope or the future. But before the onslaught of the new discoveries and developments, in the earlier part of the 1800s, a philosophy would appear that began to push the world toward a major shift in thinking, one that would pull many Christians into its dehumanizing orbit. George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel developed a treatise in his The Phenomenology of Spirit, 
which one could sum up with the statement, quote, the state is the march of God on earth, unquote. The philosopher believed that it was through the actions of the governments that God's will could be found, and through their actions, he would in time come to know himself fully. Ah, God is a mystery, even unto himself, has to be a concept that must give Richard Rohr the tinglys. Early 20th century Baptist theologian, minister, and socialist Walter Rauschenbusch would illustrate just how Hegelianism would come to take hold of many of the progressive Christians' mind when he stated, quote, All history becomes the unfolding of the purpose of the eminent God who is working in the race toward the commonwealth of spiritual liberty and righteousness. History is the sacred workshop of God, unquote. Another progressive, Baptist pastor Henry Emerson Fosdick, in his criticism of those fundamentalist Christians who were waiting for a literal return of Christ from the sky riding on a cloud wagon, stated that he and his fellow progressive Christians believed that Christ would return through their own actions. Quote, We have assimilated as part of the divine revelation the exhilarating insight which these recent generations have given to us. That development is God's way of working out His will. We see that the most desirable elements in human life have come through the method of development, unquote. To be clear, it seems God's will can be seen in history, but it's just not in the way the Hegelian progressives had hoped for. According to 19th century American Bishop Daniel A. Payne, quote, In history, we have manifestations of God. We see these in the origin, progress, and complete development of a nation's greatness with its decline, old age, and death, in which we see exhibitions of the retributive justice and providence of God as the almighty ruler of races and nations, kingdoms and empires. We see God humbling the arrogant pride of despots, as in the case of Nebuchadnezzar exalting the humble and the wise, as in the case of Daniel, punishing crime, as in the case of David, and rewarding incorruptible virtue, as in the person of Joseph, breaking the arm of the brazen, hearted and blasphemous enslaver, as he did a pharaoh, and out of the enslaved race producing a great people, as illustrated by the history of the Israelites. Unquote. If pain is correct, then the state's that the progressives believed were the next step in humanity's evolution, God did not find integral to his self-discovery. Most of the systems, socialists by the way, the progressives endorsed didn't have very long lifespans. Compare the Soviet Union's 69 years to its reactionary running dog capitalist rival, the United States, which at this writing is 244 years and still hanging in there. A good amount of the enlightened leaders were either executed by their population, assassinated by their comrade slash competitors, and in some cases took their own lives. But the best proof for the case that these systems were not the arrival of the kingdom of God was their amazing ability to create hells on earth not seen before in human history. You see, Hegelianism would also devalue the individual, some progressive thinkers even asserting that there was, in fact, no individual. Just masses sharing a collective world soul, or zeitgeist, single-cell organisms in the body of God. The reality of individual free will was also an illusion. This made it easier for such later societal architects as communists, fascists, Nazis, and progressives to disregard the value of whole swaths of people. The catastrophic consequences of this way of thinking we will get to a little later down this well-paved, good-intention blacktop road. But the biggest quake in humanity's understanding of everything came inside the pages of Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species, published in 1859. The man whose father had dreams of he becoming a parson observed that in nature, often the organisms that were sick, weak, obsolete, 
and most importantly, unable to adapt to change, were soon to die out, ensuring that their negative traits would not be passed on to future generations. Also, Darwin noted that as each generation went into the next, organisms were improving with each bit of undesired genetic material being shed and advantageous mutations being propagated. Thus, all life on Earth was evolving. For many of the hearers of this news who might have been nominally religious or unsure, this proved that God either didn't exist or was unnecessary to nature. Some, just as the deus machina and rationalist crowd had the century before, began to see creation as indeed the work of God, but something he didn't meddle with, the unengaged clockmaker. His invention, such a perfectly working machine, he never needed to tool with or reconfigure. This is where the suspicion of miracles bore out, the scientifically-minded believer unable to see why God would ever want to break his own physical laws. But it was Darwin's theory of evolution as applied to humans which may have brought as much destruction, suffering, and premature deaths to so many humans over the next century, as would his apparent killing off of God. If Darwin was correct that humanity too was evolving into a healthier, more intelligent creature, he was confirming and adding more insight into what Hegel claimed some 50 years or so before. These prophecies of Hegel and Darwin seemed undeniable by anyone paying proper attention and thus lit a fervent fire in the progressives to lead humanity to the promised land of a utopian future via their wise governing. If everyone cooperated, the world would soon be singing Edward Bellamy's verse from his visionary novel Looking Backwards, quote, With a tear for the dark past, turn we then to the dazzling future, and veiling our eyes press forward. The long and weary winter of the race is ended. Its summer has began. Humanity has burst the chrysalis. The heavens are before it. Unquote. But at least in America, there was a serious roadblock for these dreams of the state herding human apes with newly sprouted butterfly wings into the correct fields of plenty. The nation's founders had been of a pessimistic nature in their views of humans, especially of their deprived fallen nature. If there were a guiding force behind the composition of the U.S. Constitution approved of 1787, it was James Madison's oft-quoted observation, quote, But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In forming a government which is to be administrated by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Unquote. Some progressives conceded that possibly the founders' viewpoint was appropriate for their own time, but it wasn't for theirs. Chief among these visionaries was Democratic President Woodrow Wilson, whom argued that the founders were stunned by their Newtonian views of the universe, which were that human nature were dictated by certain natural laws which never changed or evolved. Thus, the U.S. Declaration of Independence and Constitution were hamstringing philosopher kings like himself from making the much-needed changes to America. Quote, Living political constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and in practice. Society is a living organism and must obey the laws of life, not of mechanics. It must develop. All that progressives ask or desire is permission. In an era when development evolution is the scientific word to interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle, unquote. And what was the Darwinian principle? Well, whatever the, quote, expert class decided it was. Yan Fu, a scholar who brought Darwinism to China, surmised that, quote, peoples and living things struggle for survival, 
At first, species struggle with species. They, as people, gradually progress. There is a struggle between one social group and another. The weak invariably become the prey of the strong. The stupid invariably become subservient to the clever." It seems that to the progressives, they were the class that was both stronger and more clever. In addition to being altruistic enough to herd us wimpy dummies in directions beneficial to all. But to pull all this off, there would have to be some major tinkering done to the founding documents. The American concept of the natural rights of the individual needing to be protected from the desire or, quote, needs of the majority would have to be tossed into the historical landfill along with other antiquated ideas. A pioneer of the concept of the administrative state carrying out the evolution of the human race by advocating a kind of soft slavery, Frank Johnson Goodnow surmised, quote, We no longer believe, as we once believed, that a good social organization can be secured merely through stressing our rights. The emphasis is being laid more and more on social duties, unquote. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche developed a similar concept of superior humans who give the less sophisticated ones their values. He dubbed it the Übermensch, or Overman, or Superman, as it's often translated into English. Quote, the overman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say, the overman shall be the meaning of the earth, unquote. A young Nietzschean disciple from Chicago, Nathan Leopold, added that, quote, a superman is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do, unquote. Similar ideas had also been stated in the years just before the publication of Origin of the Species by a group of individuals who had been for many generations already putting Ubermatch-like viewpoints into action. Quote, The one in twenty are as clearly born or educated or some way fitted for command and liberty. Not to make them rulers or masters is a great violation of natural right, as not to make slaves of the mass, stated George Fitzhugh in his defense of the system of human slavery. Another defender of slavery, James Henry Hammond, agreed, adding, I repudiate as ridiculously absurd that much lauded but nowhere accredited dogma of Mr. Thomas Jefferson that all men are born equal. No society has ever yet existed without a natural variety of classes. The most marked of these must in a country like ours be the rich and the poor, the educated and the ignorant, unquote. But back to the progressive age, one way in which these beliefs of superior men ruling over others manifested was with some Americans seeing their nation as a race of supermen rising above the rest of the world. Theodore Teddy Roosevelt was a key figure holding these kind of ideas. A Republican who had become president after William McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist, T.R. became frustrated by the Republican Party's lack of zeal in implementing progressive ideas and attempted to become president again by running as a candidate on the formed, just for him, by him, Progressive Party. His followers were so sure of his divine mission, the audience at the 1912 Progressive Party convention sang the hymn, We Will Follow Jesus, switching out Christ's name for Roosevelt's. In spite of Many Americans generally proud that the nation had not followed the European trend of furthering imperial ambitions by colonization and other similar measures. Roosevelt felt the world would in fact benefit if America pushed itself on other nations. Quote, Every expansion of a great civilized power means a victory for law, order, and righteousness. Unquote. 
To Roosevelt and other progressives, the level of modernity attained in the United States was the evidence of the nation's superiority. Thus, those nations or cultures that never seemed to progress beyond basic primitive technologies and where brute force was their answer to solving most conflicts were, of course, of an inferior nature to those of more civilized cultures. It was the moral responsibility of superior cultures to uplift the lower, even if it meant with violence. Quote, On the border between civilization and barbarism, war is generally normal because it must be under the conditions of barbarism, unquote. T.R. encouraged his fellow countrymen. Charles Miriam, a progressive party associate of T.R. and later serving in both the Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt administrations, had harsher words for the lesser civilizations. Quote, in a state composed of several nationalities, the Teutonic, or Germanic, element should never surrender the balance of power to others. The Teutonic race can never regard the exercise of political power as a right of man, but it must always be their policy to condition the exercise of political rights on the possession of political capacity. The Teutonic races must civilize the politically uncivilized. They must have a colonial policy. Barbaric races, if incapable, may be swept away, and such action violates no rights of these populations, which are not petty and not trifling in comparison with its transcendent right and duty to establish political and legal order everywhere. On the same principle, interference with the affairs of states not wholly barbaric, but nonetheless incapable of affecting political organization for themselves, is fully justified." These beliefs would justify the atrocities committed in the Philippines following the Spanish-American War to subjugate a relatively primitive culture who, though were grateful to be put out from under Spanish rule via America's assistance, were also equally unthrilled to be dominated by the United States. A similar view aided the often unwarranted violence committed against Native American tribes during the continuing Western expansion within America itself. What is the ape to man, a laughingstock or a painful embarrassment? And man shall be just that for the overman, a laughingstock or a painful embarrassment. Friedrich Nietzsche So what was to be done with those in America who, in spite of already existing within the most advanced culture on the planet, still could not be lifted or refused to be led? The slave masters had just put them to work. But the 13th Amendment to the very irritatingly difficult-to-change Constitution put a big old brick wall up in front of that stairway to dictatorship. And so a kind of bitterness and hatred toward the riffraff grew in the hearts of many progressives. They began to look at the poor, the sick, the deformed, the criminal, and the stupid scavenging about the gutters of Western civilization with a colder Darwinian slant. And for many, certain races seemed to be more doomed for destitution no matter what you tried to do for them. Quote, we believe that the current type of pure American blood must be kept uncontaminated by mongrel strains and protected from racial pollution, unquote. Asserted a platform for the women of the Ku Klux Klan in Little Rock, Arkansas. When the ideas of racial superiority during the progressive age are talked about today, if they're talked about at all, they are dismissed as just the rhetoric of mail-order chemistry set, junk scientists, crack-brained, one-eye-bigger-than-the-other theorists 
with a typewriter, or uneducated, poor, bib overall wearing greasy white racist. But let's hear from a textbook called A Civic Biology, used in American high schools in the 1920s. Quote, At the present time, there exists upon the earth five races or varieties of man, each very different from the other in instincts, social customs, and to an extent in structure. These are the Ethiopian or Negro type, originating from Africa, the Malay or brown race from the islands of the Pacific, the American Indian, the Mongolian or yellow race, including the natives of China, Japan, and the Eskimos, and finally, the highest type of all, the Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. Incidentally, this work written by eugenicist and segregationist George William Hunter was also the textbook used by progressive hero and science martyr John Scopes of the legendary Scopes Monkey Trial. The Darwinian racism of progressivism was even present within the races considered pitiful by the Caucasians. Author, civil rights activist, and co-founder of the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois, found that only a fraction of his fellow blacks was worthy of procreation. Quote, the mass of ignorant Negroes still breed carelessly and disastrously, so that the increase among the Negroes, even more than the increase among whites, is from that portion of the population least intelligent and fit, and least able to rear their children properly, unquote. And so came the urgent, obvious idea that not only were these lessers a dead weight on civilization, but if the human race wanted to evolve, only certain folks should be breeding. Charles Darwin had already said as much, quote, With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who, from a weak constitution, would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak numbers of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who is attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care, or care wrongly directed, leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. Unquote. Again, John Scopes cherished a civic biology agreed. Quote, just as certain animals or plants become parasitic on other plants or animals, these families have become parasitic on society. They not only do harm to others by corrupting, stealing, or spreading disease, but they are actually protected and cared for by the state out of public money. Largely for them, the poorhouse and the asylum exist. They take from society, but they give nothing in return. They are true parasites. Unquote. So how were the progressives to push their wills on the masses, especially in the United States, where the government's power over individuals would be clotheslined by the constitutional right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In a word, eugenics. Eugenics was a, quote, scientific theory developed by Charles Darwin's half-cousin, Francis Galton, inspired by Darwin's theory of natural selection. In short, and at risk of repetition, if humans were to progress, certain negative traits would need to be forcibly removed from the gene pool. 
Margaret Sanger, and others in what became known as the eugenics movement, in the public view preached to especially the poor that birth control would lessen their poverty, it making some sense that with less mouths to feed there would be fewer financial struggles. W.E.D. Du Bois tied his horse to Sanger's cart by working with her on the, quote, Negro Project, an effort to reduce the population of the black race significantly with birth control in hopes that the so-called talented 10% would become the ancestors of future African Americans. Some of the undesirable whites and blacks voluntarily accepted this avenue and began producing less offspring, but still many of those of weak genetics still wanted children, or at least wanted to continue to make them. And so the eugenicists moved to persuade some state lawmakers to pass statutes allowing their governments to force sterilization on those deemed by the court to be, quote, mentally deficient or feeble-minded. The great terrible yet well-meaning power given to those experts in government ended up proving true the outdated traditional Christian belief in the fallibility of humanity. It also made America's founders seem a little wiser than previously thought. Many innocent individuals, women chiefly, suffered at the hands of those trying to force humans to evolve. Such was the case with Carrie Buck in the state of Virginia, where at the prodding of her parents, a court forced the young girl into being sterilized simply for getting pregnant out of wedlock. The parents insisted that the girl was feeble-minded, and the court agreed, in spite of her academic work at school showing the opposite to be true. When the action was challenged as a violation of yet another Galdang constitutional amendment, the 14th, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes disagreed, asserting that the government had the power to make the girl sterile, not unlike how during war individuals were called up by the nation to fight and die for the sake of the nation. It was also akin to how forcing individuals to be vaccinated was for the better health of the whole society. Quote, It is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough, But sterilization was no solution for those already born defective and draining human resources just to survive. Such was the case known as Baby Bollinger. A baby born with several physical deformities, which Dr. Harry Hazelden judged would reduce him to a life of either that of an imbecile or a criminal. And so the doctor convinced the child's parents that to perform life-saving surgery would only be interfering with nature, and together the three decided to let the baby die. As the mother, Anna Bollinger, said in defense of her actions, quote, No one need think me a cruel or unnatural mother. My heart is full of mother love for all my children. But this poor little one, if allowed to live, would be for years only a burden to itself. Its life would be dark, barren, useless, unrelieved by happiness to itself or pleasure or service to others. It is, as the doctor says, one of nature's blunders. And I am willing that nature would correct its errors by my baby's death. Dr. Hazelton would go on to allow at least two other children to die, quote naturally, and created a feature film portraying his eugenicist side of the argument entitled Black Swan. The Baby Bollinger case became a sensational story, garnering support from most of the leading progressives of the day. 
the one exception being Catholic Jane Addams, who countered that, quote, A physician or hospital board has not the right to assume the prerogative to say that any person shall be killed, but is required by the highest moral law to save every life that possibly can be saved, unquote. One ironic progressive supporter of the destruction of baby Bollinger was progressive socialist Helen Keller. Herself defective by way of being deaf and mute, Keller praised Hazleton as a fine humanitarian and said that his critics were guilty of, quote, cowardly sentimentalism, unquote. Explaining her stance and maybe defending her own right to life, Keller wrote, quote, a human life is sacred only when it may be of some use to itself and the world. The world is already flooded with unhappy, unhealthy, mentally unsound people who should never have been born, unquote. When asked his opinion on the baby Bollinger case, defense lawyer for John Scopes and progressive icon Clarence Darrow concurred with the parents and doctor, quote, chloroform unfit children, show them the same mercy that has shown beasts that are no longer fit to live, unquote. Fittingly, less than 10 years after baby Bollinger was left to die, two young Chicago men took it upon themselves to rid the world of another being that nature must have wished out of existence. The aforementioned self-proclaimed Superman, Nathan Leopold, and his sometimes lover, Richard Loeb, responded to both the messages of eugenics and Friedrich Nietzsche targeting a 14-year-old boy named Bobby Franks in their neighborhood, whom they deemed to be a lesser. The young men killed Franks by striking his skull with a chisel, poured acid onto his face and genitals, and dumped his body near a lake in Indiana. Leopold and Loeb were eventually caught and were legally represented by, you guessed it, Clarence Darrow, whose defense for the men used the Darwinian logic that, quote, this terrible crime was inherent in his organism, and it came from some ancestor. Is any blame attached because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life upon it? It is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university, unquote. Now, neither Darrow or Leopold or Loeb or Sanger or Du Bois were Christians, so the ability to see the image of God in anyone else, much less the inferior, was unsurprisingly absent. But one would think that this kind of worldview which rated certain individuals as more worthy than others would find absolutely no purchase among least of these minded Christians especially when considering what Nietzsche had to say about those who believed in God. Quote, I beseech you, my brothers, remain faithful to the earth and do not believe those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes. Poison mixers are they, whether they know it or not. Despisers of life are they, decaying and poisoned themselves, of whom the earth is weary. So let them go. Unquote. But the progressives within the faith, including ministers, came to share the views and ends of the eugenicist. For these believers, if only humans could perfect the human race, the kingdom of God could finally be ushered in. According to G. Stanley Hall, quote, Eugenics has pointed out many, and will, let us hope, find out many more practical ways of improving the human stock and helping the world on towards the kingdom of some kind of superman, to which the men of today may someday prove to be only a transition, a link which with all that absorbs us now may be lost sight of and possibly become a missing link, unquote. Birth control appealed to many progressive Christians who thought overpopulation was the cause of wars and other catastrophes. Sterilization forced upon those whose society viewed as unfit, solved a lot of problems, and brought many benefits. Reverend Kenneth MacArthur, 
of the Federated Church of Sterling, Massachusetts, wrote that directed contraception accomplished, quote, without any massacre or anything contrary to the love of Christ, race progress may go on to an ideal society until we all attain the fullness of the stature of Christ, unquote. Pastor of the Plymouth Congregational Church in Lansing, Michigan, Edwin Bishop asked his listeners, quote, Shall we humans not realize what God is trying to do for us, and how he suggests that we participate with him in conscious evolution? Unquote. Those who became sterilized still had a role in God's kingdom, according to Reverend Phillips Endicott Osgood of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Minneapolis. Because of their sacrifice to deny themselves offspring, they would become a cherished, quote, redemptive helper of the next generation, unquote. And here are the Hegelian-laced words of the most notorious figure in human history, who would take matters of perfecting the human race to their even more extreme yet actual logical conclusion. Quote, Man judges everything in relation to himself. What is bigger than himself is big. What is smaller is small. Only one thing is certain, that one is part of the spectacle. Everyone finds his own role. Joy exists for everybody. I dream of a state of affairs in which every man would know that he lives and dies for the preservation of the species. It's our duty to encourage that idea. Let the man who distinguishes himself in the service of the species be thought worthy of the highest honors, unquote. That man was Adolf Hitler, who along with his German National Socialists would proclaim the Aryans a race of Übermensch, which were to rule over and eventually exterminate lesser races. Hitler was a great admirer of America's eugenics laws. He even giving our method of pruning defectives from the human family tree a shout-out in his infamous book, Mein Kampf. Some six years after he took control of Germany, the Fuhrer signed Action T4, authorizing the euthanasia of those, quote, unworthy of life, unquote, including handicapped, mentally ill, and alcoholics. Some of this weeding out of the race was accomplished via buses retrofitted to become mobile killing machines even. The total number of individuals snuffed out by the order exceeded 70,000. Eventually, gypsies, Catholics, homosexuals, Jews, and other non-Ubermatch, or those opposed to Nazi policies, were also gassed or shot over ditches. Estimates vary, but at least 10 million souls met their end by the Nazis' coordinations. Still, Hitler knew that conservative Christians recognizing the authority of God before that of the state were going to be a problem. Quote, I can't allow churchmen to interfere with temporal affairs. The organized lie must be smashed. The state must remain the absolute master. It was only between the 6th and 8th centuries that Christianity was imposed on our peoples by princes who had an alliance of interest with the Shavelings. Our peoples had previously succeeded in living all right without this religion, unquote. Many Christians resisted Hitler's madness, notably those among the confessing and Catholic churches, they paying for their nonconformity with their lives, and yet many believers went along with the master plan. Granted, a literal gun was pointed at many of their heads, so maybe we should be somewhat slow to judge. But we'd be remiss to ignore the fact that even before Hitler came to power, there was a group calling themselves the German Christians who conformed their beliefs to accommodate the rising Nazi power, including butchering scripture by removing the more Jewish-sounding parts, particularly the entire Old Testament. In 1931, this group issued a statement of faith where which both Nazis and eugenicists could find something that resonated with their scripture superseding beliefs. 
Quote, We stand on the ground of positive Christianity. We profess an affirmative faith in Christ, fitting our race and being in accordance with the German Lutheran mind and heroic piety. Mere compassion is charity and leads to presumption, paired with bad conscience, and effeminates a nation. We know something about Christian obligation and charity towards the helpless, but we also demand the protection of the nation from the unfit and inferior. We see a great danger in our nationality in the Jewish mission. It promises to allow foreign blood into our nation. Marriages between Jews and Germans must be prohibited. Unquote. And that's from Ludwig Mueller's statement on the beliefs of German Christians. One wonders what history would have looked like if the whole of the followers of Christ in Germany, France, Russia, and other nations the Nazis occupied had simply refused to submit their faiths to the will of the clearly anti-Christian regime or even took up their own swords against this evil. The atrocities committed by the German National Socialists revealed more fully at the close of World War II shocked most of the planet, progressives surely among that number. And yet their prophet, Charles Darwin himself, had predicted Hitler's attempt as much as 70 years before. Quote, At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. At the same time, the apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break will then be rendered wider, for it will intervene between man and a more civilized state, as we may hope, than the Caucasian and some apes, as low as a baboon, instead of as at present between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla." Unquote. person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for his father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Ezekiel 18.20 Now in saying all that I have said, one might think I was holding the progressives of today accountable for the sins of the progressives before. Of course not. I don't want to be held accountable for the misdeeds of any other person calling themselves a Christian or a Hoosier or a white guy or whatever else trait I may share with anyone in the past, as that I'm pretty sure the progressives don't want to be held accountable for my sin of writing this essay. But this is, I believe, a cry of corpses from history warning those who may sincerely be attempting to become relevant to our present culture, presumably in an attempt to save it, to not also lose one's own soul in the process or to become handmaidens to evil. There is a distinction to be acknowledged in becoming all things to all people and taking on the very contrary to Christianity beliefs or destructive practices that the world needs saving from. I truly believe that many progressive Christians of today have real convictions which stem from their love for those suffering in our fallen world, and some of their concerns are scripturally based. Proverbs 82.3 says, quote, Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, unquote. This backs up the spirit of much of their stated mission. While we surely disagree on how that gets executed, what Christ follower could counter the stated end? But while advocating for this justice, many of those in the modern progressive Christian movement have at the same time submitted their beliefs to the current culture in ways that ends up assisting the extermination of these same potentially oppressed and destitute. There's more than one area that I think this applies, but for brevity and relevance, I'll just stick to one. 
the modern progressive church's work in preserving the act of abortion. Now, before we go further, those of you rolling your eyes, could you please reposition them back onto your phone for a moment and do an image search for Nazi atrocities and then aborted fetus? While you're doing that, I should say that in spite of all the mocking I've done in this essay so far, I still tend to put people into a certain category if they belittle others for not knowing something. If we don't know, we just don't know, and usually that's not our fault. And so if I've condemned you for something you just didn't know, I apologize. So maybe you who scoffed at my equating of abortion with the Holocaust in fact didn't know what the former looked like. It's again probably not your fault because those in the abortion industry, both who make money at performing the terminations and those who grow their power by protecting the act, have worked hard at making sure the general public thinks the procedure is as simple and as innocuous as a appendicitis. So, now if you've compared the two images and you can still view them as totally unrelated, well then, you must accept that the humans who committed both of these evils are your ideological kin. The modern culture that we're so obsessed with pleasing justifies its embracing of abortion for reasons ranging from reducing the population and thus helping the environment, pointing out that regions where abortion is not restricted also experiences lower crime rates, to the claim that the unborn child is the property of the mother and so has no right to its own life. And why wouldn't the world think like this? There's no guiding principles, laws, or scriptures anyone can appeal to except for whatever the majority or most powerful deem might be some semblance of an ethical framework. Again, just as one might have trusted the whole church to have spoken up for the enslaved, suffering, and murdered during the crisis of slavery, eugenics, and genocide, you'd think all those following Jesus these days would at least voice their opposition to the killing of little ones created in the likeness of God. And yet, a whole bunch of progressive church members has yet again gotten themselves entangled in the butchery of humans. Today, whole denominations such as the American Presbyterians, United Methodists, Unitarians, and others officially support a woman's choice to, quote, interrupt a pregnancy, as they can decode it, The Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice started back in that magical bloody year of 1973 and still claims to challenge, quote, systems of oppression, unquote, of a course by supporting, quote, individuals, especially those in marginalized communities, in accessing comprehensive reproductive health care with respect and dignity, unquote, so that they can kill their own young. 150 faith leaders, including Catholics, African, Methodists, Episcopal, and Nazarenes in Tennessee, recently petitioned its governor to veto the state's heartbeat bill, which would have banned abortions after a heartbeat was detectable. Catherine Ragsdale, an Episcopal priest and president of the National Abortion Federation, says, quote, Using the word baby is a manipulating lie. It may feel like a baby when you're wanting it to come. In theology, that's called proleptic hope, unquote. Prominent progressive Christian female leaders have embraced parts of militant feminism, dismissing the pro-life movement as nothing but patriarchs, attempting to maintain their control over women, of which around 50% of the children they abort are kept from ever forming into women. Planned Parenthood, originally named the Birth Control League and founded by Margaret Sanger, was recently invited to conduct a seminar at the Progressive Christian Wild Goose Festival, featuring speakers who helped prepare women, quote, spiritually, for their abortions. President Barack Obama, who found his faith in Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ, used his much-heralded Affordable Care Act to force employers to pay for abortion-inducing drugs for their employees. 
God bless the little sisters of the poor for fighting the measure all the way to the Supreme Court, which gave the plaintiffs a unanimous win, yes, including all of the leftist and Obama-nominated judges. The Christian base ban you too, in spite of their years of speaking out for the plight of those suffering from war and poverty, turned around and endorsed the repeal of Ireland's Eighth Constitutional Amendment, which ended up lifting the ban on killing defenseless children in the womb. And the list goes on. The general narrative tends to be that these Christians are called by Christ to care about freedom for individuals, which now somehow is acceptable and allowed in progressives' Hegelian soup, and that it is better to kill the child rather than allowing it to live either in poor or unwanted circumstances. Pastor Jess Cast explained her pro-choice position to The Atlantic, quote, There's this little passage in the Gospel of John that continues to stay with me. Jesus says, quote, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, unquote. The Greek word that's used there for life abundance is the word zoe, which means not just that you're living and breathing, but that God's plan for our lives is to actually have a meaningful life with loving contentment and satisfaction. Because of that, because I value life and I believe Jesus values life, I value the choices that give us the type of life that we need, unquote. So does this give anyone a license to jab surgical scissors into the skulls of people without contentment and satisfaction? Yikes. That's pretty much been all of us at some point in our lives. Hey y'all, out there, on your evening sad soul-searching walk, better worry about the crisis of your existence another day, because Pastor Cast might be lurking behind you to snuff it out altogether. And yet this argument about the quality of life dictating whether one should live or die is nothing new. The Reverend Robert Miller of the Church of Our Father in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, wrote that there were, quote, two rights of childhood, the right of the child to be born and the right not to be born at all, unquote. Miller, by the way, was a pro-eugenics minister during the original progressive age. And I guess I totally missed the part where Jesus said, and whoever slaughters a little child to help it avoid being unwanted, uncomfortable, and a burden to society, helps me avoid being unwanted, uncomfortable, and a burden to society. Of all people, Karl Marx was reported to have said often to his daughter, quote, Despite everything, we can forgive Christianity much because it has taught us to love children, unquote. But even that redeeming quality, the progressive believers seems to be undoing via their sacred abortion mills. Richard Rohr writes that, quote, We concentrate instead on things that Jesus never once talked about, like birth control, homosexuality, and abortion bodily sins because the body can most easily carry shame, unquote. Power, prestige, and possession, Rohr goes on to explain, should be our main focus since it was Jesus's. Putting aside how ending the life of an innocent seems to be a hot, sweaty menage a trois of power, prestige, and possession, it's a bummer for slave masters that Rohr wasn't around in the early 19th century. He could have been there to rebuke their enemies, the abolitionists, for obsessing so much over the issue of slavery, both about the bondage of another human, but all the serial raping the masters forced upon their often already slave-married women. You're too focused on bodily sins, the friar might mock Angelina Grimke, Sojourner Truth, Elijah Lovejoy, and the like. By Rohr's reckoning, slavery and rape was so not on Jesus' mind, he never mentioned these sins either. Photographer Peter Rowan, to me, cuts through the pro-choice lobby's attempt to put a pinafore on a dead baby and call it something beautiful for God. Quote, We're being told abortion is a human rights issue. Since when did humans have the right to end the life of another? As Christians, we're called to be light in a world 
that's growing even darker. Jesus said, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in all its fullness, unquote. By the way, Rowan is the very boy photographed on the covers of U2's albums, Boy and War. Consider again how we Christians, in order to embrace the secular culture's devaluing of the unborn, must shrug off the forbidding of murder, the desecration by crushing or sometimes sucking through a vacuum tube, someone made in the image of God, the epic of how both babies, Moses and Jesus, had to be hidden to escape a government-ordered fratricide, Jesus' stern warning to those who caused children to stumble, and Jeremiah's revelation that God told him, quote, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations, unquote. With our childish, petulant stop at not getting our way to kill our own children, we ignore Christ's order to love others as we love ourselves. Abraham Lincoln rebuked the slaveholders in America with, quote, He who would be no slave must consent to have no slave. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves, and, under a just God, cannot long retain it, unquote. It's no stretch to paraphrase the great emancipator by echo lifting his sentiment They who would not be murdered must consent to murder no other. Those who deny life to others, well, you get the idea. So how is this much different from the progressives of the early 20th century? Some people were meant to live and propagate, and others not. The latter having their choice being made for them by an expert who knew better. If I think I should be allowed to live while a fetus with my DNA should not, I'm placing myself as more important than them. Considering the child in the womb has committed no wrongs against anyone, and I myself have done plenty, it would actually be more just to flood saline solution into my heart, truth be told. At least we forget that today, many babies being aborted are done so because of either detected defects, such as Down syndrome, or sex selection. We often assume that there's no racial element concerning modern abortion, but if not, why are most Planned Parenthood clinics located in black neighborhoods? In the enlightened hub of New York City, currently, more black babies are aborted than born. No doubt there is a crisis of children being raised not only in poverty, but also by parents unwilling to care for them properly. The pro-choice argument that the only solution is a prenatal drive-by, I think we can all agree, is pretty absurd. The other solutions are more difficult and might interrupt our self-absorbed lives, but they leave far less blood and body parts splattered about. Volunteering to assist parents who think they can't take care of their child would be a good start. Also, putting more pressure on individuals to become responsible for their actions would, although be sure to invite some blowback, could also help the situation. Even if they refuse our help or advice, there's the avenue of mentorship, foster care, and adoption. Not all of us are equipped for these sacrifices, but we can at least support the ones who are, and there are plenty who, often out of the limelight, suffer the little discarded children. I can think of one couple. Ryan and Bethany Bomberger, they have two natural children and two adopted. Ryan himself was a result of a rape and adopted into a racially hodgepodge family of 15. Both he and Bethany now head the Radiance Foundation, a pro-life advocacy group. But their work is often demonized not only by the secular progressives, the NAACP unsuccessfully sued them, but ashamedly the Christian ones as well. Some students and faculty at Wheaton College in 2018 protested Bomberger's presence on their campus because they claimed his message, or in essence his existence, made them feel, quote, unheard, underrepresented, and unsafe on our campus, 
unquote. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you do not belong to the world, but I choose you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you, unquote. John 15, 19. Now progressives, of course, are not the only ones contorting their faith to swim easier with the currents of the times. Every distraction existing from patriotism to economics to popular culture to the need to be accepted by those around us to gratification of our own self-importance to countless other habits and beliefs are all potential idols bowed down to alongside the God who commands us to have no other gods before him. Indeed, historically, Christianity has from its beginning struggled to keep its eye fixed on our Father and his commands to us. The church's attempt to brick itself into a Roman Empire-style organization, even calling itself the Holy Roman Empire. St. Augustine, not quite leaving all of his early pagan understandings behind, and in many ways making his vision of Christianity conform to the creation-resenting views of Plato. Latin Americans disguising their East African gods, many of them quite the malicious characters, as saints to remain at peace with their new religion, Christianity, which was often forced upon them. Being in a world to reach the folks in it, while not becoming compromised by it, is certainly difficult, but it's been done gazillions of times in these past 2,000 years by all kinds of folk who lived and died without ever having their names written down anywhere of any prominence. Every culture that embraces Christianity is going to follow God with their own flavors and understandings. For example, when talking to a Buddhist or Taoist, we can easily use their own ideas and images to explain the gospel, just providing that in the process, we don't end up co-opting ones that might be in conflict with key tenets of our faith. The cross was a Roman symbol of shame and punishment used by the apostles to convey redemption. While in Athens, Paul used the altar dedicated to the unknown God, to communicate his message to the Greeks. St. Patrick had to go against the traditions of the Roman church to establish successfully the gospel amongst the pagan Irish. Countless sermons from New England's pre-revolutionary pulpits used the sayings and concepts of Aristotle, Cicero, Seneca, and other pagans to further illustrate biblical teachings. Most of the better songs in the Christian hymn books are set to the melodies of old drinking songs familiar and loved by folks who especially needed to hear the stowaway lyrics. These kinds of methods are why most effective missionaries were usually the ones who immersed themselves in the culture they were in, donning the traditional dress, speaking the language, observing the holidays, and so on, as it was fit for a Christian to do. If we were trying to convert, say, the ancient Canaanite culture, of course going in and killing their women and children or giving them the choice between conversion or decapitation would not be very effective in building sincere faiths in addition to violating even the most basic tenets of our faith. But are we going to become so relevant to their culture that we would join them in their sacrificing of children to their god Moloch? Well, it seems some in our modern church might be down with that already. One thing I've learned in my few years on the planet is that it's pretty fruitless to keep rebranding our faith and hope that the world will ever think that we're cool. The gatekeepers of worldly chic financial institutions, the entertainment industry, secular academia, and political power brokers are admittedly difficult to not try to please, given their influence and pizzazz. 
but just as vain and pernicious to humanity as the gods of Greek myths were, most of these modern entities subsist on power, supremacy, and self-gratification, and whose vociferous appetite can only be momentarily sated by the receipt of our attention, income, submission of our wills, and sacrifice of our children. In other words, they want us to worship them, and if that's not idolatry, I clearly don't know what is. No doubt, followers of Christ can and should be present in most of those institutions where we might have some positive influence, or at least slow the creep towards the abyss, and can reach individuals there who have as much worth as any of us. But capitulating our beliefs to a capricious, fickle culture that discards those whose only sins might be their fading beauty, youth, marketability, and willingness to ignore their conscience is doomed to bring us down while it devours itself. love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. 1 John 2, 15-17. Quote, the mind solicits diverse ideas from everywhere, and those ideas are like the coral, and like starlight, and like wives of the sea. There is a constant yearning for some knowledge that will confirm current beliefs, and a fear of learning something that will alter them. Unquote. Jose Marti. I'll be the first to admit that in my early life, I was easily influenced. It probably came from a variety of ailments, intellectual weakness, insecurity, a strong desire to belong to a group, or some other flaws I either can't recall or haven't yet discovered in all of my self-reflection. So it's no exaggeration to state that if a friend or a politician or a musician, speaking of you two, made some assertion of truth, I began the process of making room for it in my belief system, sometimes at the cost of turning some other previous held thought out onto the cold, smelly street. In another season of my misadventures with misguided accommodation, when I was in university and was learning about particular European history where Christianity for a time was the norm, I remember thinking, how can we get back to that? And then later, looking at early American history, especially when put against the rapid secularization of the culture since 1960s, the same question occurred to me. And so for a regrettable too many years, the recapturing of culture for Christianity was my main focus. It's sad, not because I think now that more people shouldn't be in communion with Christ. It's just that instead of working on being obedient to God, I was thinking on, how could we market Jesus to the culture? And so for a while, I kept working on trying to make Jesus acceptable to the masses, ever eager to throw my crude brothers and sisters in Christ under the bus to please my new friends. And in that process, I, in a way, did some major plastic surgery on the Son of God in an attempt to make him seem super delicious to the movers and shakers. Obviously, considering how much further our culture is in the toilet today than it was in the 1990s, you can see that I was not very successful. And in the end, all I did was prostrate myself before false gods more than basking in the love of the one true one. There's a traditional Korean story I adore and think it's fitting to what we're talking about today. 
There was an old woman who worked for a rich man, and when it was time for her to return to her own house, she was given a box of buckwheat pudding. Not long into her journey home, the woman encountered a tiger who demanded one of the puddings. It was either the pudding or her life, so the woman gave up one of the puddings. The tiger ate the pudding and then raced ahead through the woods, appearing before the woman again, demanding another pudding or death. She obliged, and the cycle repeated until the woman was out of puddings. The tiger then asked, What's that swinging by your sides? You mean my arms? The woman asked. Sure, the tiger replied, not caring what they were called. Let me eat one of them. The woman didn't really see that she had any other options, and so let the beast eat off one of her arms. This cycle continued until she was just an armless, legless human worm. The tiger finally just ate the rest of the utterly defenseless woman. There's more to this story involving the tiger and the woman's young children, but we'll stop there for the sake of the subject at hand. I just want us to consider, is our godless culture the tiger, and are we super accommodating Christians the ever-compromising woman? Do we think if we just tweak this and that, then the unsaved will finally find the gospel palatable? Or is the tiger simply Satan and all of us humans, be they believer or atheist, the foolish woman who keeps surrendering away parts of ourselves until we have nothing useful left for him or anyone else? Whichever the case, whatever our errors both on the progressive or traditional sides when encountering the culture we live in, it can all be reversed and corrected. You see, one of the most beautiful and unique elements of Christianity which cleans up all of our hurtful messes is the promise of God's forgiveness by those who seek it. According to Isaiah 55, 7, quote, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon, unquote. And just from the pro-abortion side of the aisle, there have been many, many individuals who have renounced their positions and joined the efforts at trying to limit or stop the practice of infanticide. Carol Everett reports that while in her time in the abortion industry, she aided in the termination of over 35,000 unborn and the death of at least one woman. But after a change of heart and mind, she became one of the leading critics and activists against the practice. And Everett is just one among multiple former prominent professionals working for Planned Parenthood or other pro-abortion businesses and organizations that are now trying to reverse humanity's killing of its own. Not to mention the thousands of parents who chose to abort their children now working to stop others from making the same mistake. Probably the most notable prodigal daughter was a woman named Norma McCorvey, whom we know better as Jane Roe in the infamous Roe v. Wade in which the United States Supreme Court declared laws against abortion unconstitutional. It's well established that the current culture cannot accept full pardons for certain transgressions, and you see it daily, ranging from drudged-up sins of youth, to guilt by association, to social condemnation without due process, to crimes of birth, race, and gender, a.k.a. intersectionality, critical theory, social justice, and cultural Marxism. This vulgar display of exclusive redemption is why the worldly wore out often seek the refuge and hospital that is the church. No one else will accept them. And yet here again, many progressive Christians are quick to amputate grace from the canon and replace it with a prosthetic concept of redemption contingent on the interpretation of a consensus of anointed elite only available to preferred submitters and denied forever to mortal enemies. This reshaping of justice to human preferences only leaves the manufactured pariahs the avenues of either giving up and continuing to commit their evil acts or just ending their own lives. 
Why, as a society, would we bellyache about all that is wrong in the world if those doing the wrong cannot correct themselves and begin doing good? Is it because we need to remain in a position of superiority or fear we might lose our worth if folks can become as righteous as ourselves? Or is it just another instance of greedily wanting power over others, mentally enslaving them perpetually as it benefits us? The promise of forgiveness that can bring the worst of all sinners back into the arms of God, unjust to our senses as it may seem, is the very same waiver that allows us whatever seemingly menial selfish acts we've committed into the kingdom as well. If you forgive others their trespasses, Jesus said, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thankfully, the world's charts and graphs explaining which offenses are unforgivable is dead wrong. In one glad day, those who've accepted our Maker's grace, be they former liars, thieves, adulterers, idolaters, self-worshippers, rapists, and even murderers of the innocent, will be together, giggling and embracing our loving, forgetful Father. had a little help with everything you just heard from folks like Mac Wells and Travis McCool, who read over the piece and made some suggestions. Some of my graduate professors at Ashland University provided me with some great source material, including doctors Dennis Bowman, Sarah Smith, and David Alvis. And there's a couple of folks I should point out who've written on some of the historical events we've talked about today. Alan Carson has a great article on touchtonemag.com called Sanger's Victory, How Planned Parenthood's Founder Played the Christians and Won, and Teresa Marie Moreau, who has a slew of books about Christians who have been persecuted by Nazis, Communist, and Socialist authoritarian regimes, which you can check out at TeresaMarieMoreau.com. As I mentioned before, we'll talk more about the issues raised today on the next episode, so I guess this is the part where I say, turn the record over. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.